you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We are going to be in the Gospel of John today, chapter 6. So if you would turn there, John chapter 6, verses 16 through 34. 16 through 34. Have you ever felt this way towards somebody or been in a situation where you have to say, you know, what more do I need to do to prove myself? Like, what more can I possibly do? And I'm most sure that all of us have been in that situation. Maybe that's why some of us, like myself, are gray. It's like, how can I prove this to you or show this to you? And the words are usually said by someone who may have may have lost trust with somebody and maybe they're trying to work to earn that trust back and and they're kind of reaching that breaking point or they're just dealing with a hard-hearted person who refuses to believe the truth. Maybe one of those two situations. If you were to go back to towards the beginning of the Bible in the book of Exodus, you would see really Moses turning blue in the face over and over again. In fact, at one point, it's told that he was really red hot in the face at one point when he came down the mountain. But he was constantly having to prove himself, prove that he was sent by God to lead them out of Egypt. And it's it's like you could flip the pages of the book of Exodus and just hear Moses saying over and over again, what more do I need to do to prove myself to you? The people complained leading up to, during, and after the ten plagues. It's like the ten plagues were not enough. Even the Passover, being the tenth one, was not enough. The people continued to grumble against Moses as though he was the one who was doing this. And then a couple times you just see Moses kind of go crazy, ultimately losing his cool, which kind of cost him big, where he couldn't enter into the promised land But it's kind of like, you know what, I get it. I kind of feel for the guy. I mean, what more could he possibly do? There's a grumbling that happened in ancient Israel. But there was also this grumbling that was happening in the time of Jesus with these Jews. He went to the other side of the lake, and he was hanging out in the region of Tiberias, a predominantly Jewish part of the region. And so, in masses, these Jews had come out to him. And essentially, the, he is teaching, he's teaching them, he's fielding questions, if you will. And he's dealing with the people who are frustrated or grumbling about the, their oppression under Rome, their desire to be freed. And really, now, this, this need for Jesus, this prophet like Moses, to keep proving himself. And so what we'll see today is that no matter how many signs or no matter how many miracles Jesus does, it's never enough for grumbling hearts. It's never enough for grumbling hearts. In this section of passage, you're not going to see the word grumbling. You will see it next week as you continue on in the chapter. But it is very much there. It's an undercurrent. It is constantly there. The crowd has been fed. Jesus has moved on. But the crowd is still hungry for more. More food, 
more signs, more proof in the pudding, if you will, that Jesus is ultimately greater than Moses. But all the while, they are missing both the Father and the wonderful bread that the Father provides. So, unlike, Jesus, unlike Moses though, Jesus is not going to allow the unsettling of the crowd and their challenging nature to deter Him from bringing them salvation. He's not going to lose His cool. If He's ever indignant, it's righteously so. But He's never going to lose His cool like Moses did. His aim in the midst of it all is that they would believe and have eternal life. And so we will see hungry stomachs, grumbling hearts, and ultimately a graciously merciful God in today's passage. Jesus spent hours teaching this crowd many things, and out of a heart of compassion, He saw to it the crowd was fed. The crowd was so encouraged by this miracle, they sought to make Jesus their political king. And then we remember last week, Jesus perceiving this, He withdrew from the crowd to the mountain by Himself until the evening. And so we begin to walk through this text together. Verse 16, And so when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea. And so this idea of leaving to the sea at nighttime is not exactly ideal. It's not like you're dealing with uh, street lights or evening lights or any sort of lighting in the area. When it's dark, it's dark. But given the circumstances, them wanting to raise him up to be the political king, it was time to get out of Dodge, right? So Jesus sent them out. And ultimately, Jesus needed his time alone with the Father. So he sent them out and he ascended the mountain and was with the Father by himself, intending to catch them later. And I'm kind of curious what that conversation was like. So, hey, Jesus, we're going to take the boat here, but how are you going to come over? Don't worry about it. I'll see you later. So they got into the boat, verse 17. And that would have been the same boat that brought them over. They came over on one boat. And they started across the sea to Capernaum. Tiberias was on the southern end of the sea. Capernaum up on the north end, but on the western shoreline. So it is something that would be quicker to take a boat, but you could also walk down to it. So they started across the sea to Capernaum. And something to note here in the rest of this story, we're not sure as this story develops if Jesus is dealing with just the crowd, because eventually they will come, or if he's dealing with the crowd and also the Jews in Capernaum. Because later on in chapter 6, we know that Jesus was teaching, but also teaching from the synagogue. So Jesus goes to Capernaum. As far as whether he's standing at the synagogue or he's on the shore or whatever, we're not exactly sure at this moment. So they head to Capernaum, and it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. You notice Jesus waits until it's dark, and then he goes. And again, in John's Gospel, this theme of dark and light runs all the way through the night, signifying again a very difficult time, And for the disciples, really, a dark night for their souls. And so the sea was rough. It was windy, making it difficult. 
for the disciples to go across. Verse 19, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, three or four miles against the wind, three or four miles against the waves, in the middle of the night. So they rowed until about three in the morning. I don't know about you, but I start to shut it down around 9 p.m. And if I am forced to go beyond that, I can, but I start getting really, really grumpy and mean. There's a lot of things I had to repent of after 9 p.m. And so you can imagine the disciples are having one of the most difficult nights of their lives. And with them the whole time, a stomach full of bread and fish. Miracle food. Maybe even some leftovers sitting on the floor of their boat. God's provision right there with them. (laughs) And yet, Mark chapter 6 talks about, or Mark, yeah, Mark chapter 6 talks about this grumbling heart of the disciples. Jesus is on the mountain. He descends the mountain. Mark chapter 6 tells us that he saw the disciples painfully making headway. So Jesus was aware. I don't know how he saw in the night, but he did. He was able to see the disciples. He descended the mountain, made his way to them. And as he's going to them, it says, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And so they thought they saw a ghost. We know elsewhere in the Gospels. And a ghost is this this idea is equated with really seeing death. They thought they were done for. They thought they were dead on the water. Pun intended. That's nice. So the disciples were afraid because they thought they were about to die. And so here is Jesus, the perfect radiant, glorious light of God coming down the mountain to His disciples and doing so by walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. And He comes to them. They welcome Him in. And Mark's Gospel records, as He was coming to them and coming into the boat, the question, the big issue in the minds of the disciples was this. They did not understand the loaves, the bread situation that just took back, that was just taken, or that happened, excuse me, my words got mixed, that was happening on the other side of the lake. Like they were rowing all night thinking about the bread and the fish situation, and they're seeing God essentially provide for thousands of people, and here they are rowing till three in the morning, really frustrated, and it says that their hearts were hardened. In Mark chapter 6, 52. Wow, their stomachs are full of miracle food. And so the rough conditions plus the lack of understanding the loaves equaled a hardened heart. It didn't matter that they were still digesting the food that Jesus had given them. And this is very like the condition of the Israelites grumbling even after God parted the sea. It was like they sang a song of praise after they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And after God closed the sea, the next thing that happened was they complained about their lack of food and water. But Jesus responds to them, to the disciples that is, with some compassion and really authority. In verse 20, But He said to them, It is I. It is I. 
do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. To the disciples, what Jesus was saying would just be some normal saying, nothing out of the ordinary. But for the readers of John's Gospel, for us, there is a deeper meaning here. The, constru- the construct of it is I is a variation of the I am statement. I am who I am. I am has sent you. John's Gospel, here in this chapter, starting in verse 35, is about to embark upon the seven I am's of Jesus. First one being, I am the bread of life. And so it's like John is just kind of wetting the appetite, preparing the reader to understand who Jesus really is. And after all, you can't be anyone less than the I am if you're walking on water. He's the same power, the same God who parted the seas. And so we are beholding the great I am. And so he walks towards them in this full power, this full authority. They're frustrated, they're grumbling, but then they see him And He comes to them not with a rebuke, not with anger, but with compassion. And then they were glad to take Him into the boat. There was this sigh of relief with Jesus entering the boat. For a moment they thought they were dead, but then Jesus revealed Himself to them and it was calming. It was restful. It was peaceful. And so now Jesus came into the boat and there was good company and it wasn't threatening. And then immediately the boat was at the land of which they were going. So one of two things. This could possibly be another miracle where Jesus got in the boat and then they just kind of teleported to the shore. Or Jesus, they had made it to the shore and didn't even realize it yet. And Jesus decided to get in the boat with them. And then was like, oh yeah, and and we're here now. (laughs) But regardless, Jesus calms them. He comes into the boat and they make it to the other side. Church, the Father is feeding you. He's feeding you. He's feeding me. He's feeding us. And the food that we are eating is nourishing our souls. And even nourishing our souls even while we are in the midst of the storm. Have you ever found yourself still digesting God's goodness? Then something happens and then all of a sudden you're acting as though you've never had this miraculous bread and living water inside of you? Think of it this way. This may or may not be a good illustration, but it's all I got. Thanksgiving, right? We usually eat around noon or one o'clock. You eat that meal. It is stinking delicious, like 20 pounds of butter is soaked in everything that you're eating, which makes it marvelous. And you eat it, and you are stuffed to the rafters, kind of stuffed. And it almost like miserably stuffed. And you sit on it all day long, right? You kind of have that remembrance of your meal. You're like, three o'clock hits, you're like, man, I still remember that meal at noon. Can't wait till seven when I, can, when I can heat it back up again. Versus kind of those times where you get food on the run and then sometime later you go, man, did I even eat today? <laughs> you can't even recall it. The point, 
don't lose sight of your full belly. Don't lose sight of the reality that you have food inside of you. You have the living bread and living waters inside of you. Jesus is the great I am. He is the great I am. We could often look at this story and think it's funny that the disciples had hardened their hearts even though Jesus had walked on the water. But I say, how is it any more or less comical than the miraculousness that you are right here, right now, this very day? And some of you have hardened hearts. You're alive. You're breathing. God's Word has been revealed. It was revealed to the globe. It crossed oceans. It survived the brutality of history. It has made it to your ears. has changed your heart. And now you sit here saved by grace. Jesus not only has the power to save you, but He also has the power to keep you fed even in the storm. This is a miracle. You and I sitting here is a miracle. And look, that miracle is reserved for none other than the great I Am, Jesus Himself. So praise Him for crossing what seems to be the impossible in order to feed you His own life. He sees you. He has come to you. And He remains with you. Do not lose heart. And after a rough night, the disciples and Jesus make it to the other side of the sea. The dawning of the next day will surface the ongoing desire to seek Jesus. But really, what, for what reason? What reason would they have in seeking Him? Verses 22-24. through And on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, let me pause there for a moment, Jesus left them behind. <laughs> this is the Left Behind series. Jesus left the megachurch. He left the crowd behind. They were not invited to go. He didn't say, hey, come with me. He wanted to go because the crowd had perceived Him wrongly and understood the Scriptures wrongly. He was not up for being made into a political king and running a campaign. And so they remained on the other side of the sea and they saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So the crowd, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the crowd is sitting here doing the math. They're realizing that something is not adding up. The disciples and Jesus came over on a boat, one boat. They saw the disciples leave without Jesus. They knew he was up on the mountain. They're thinking, okay, when we wake up in the morning, we'll go hang with Jesus. But Jesus is gone. And the boat is gone. And they know he couldn't have taken a boat. And so they're wondering where he is, where he went. So he must be on the other side, but the question is how? How would he have gotten there? He couldn't have possibly gotten there. And so the crowd is rightly confused. But apparently there's some boats on the shore. Perhaps these boats 
were uh, caught up in the storm and blew over to the shore where they were. We're not exactly sure. People got into the boat and went across to the sea to Capernaum. And it is safe to assume that with the thousands upon thousands of people that perhaps there were not enough boats to carry them all, some people even having to walk the shore back to Capernaum. It doesn't matter. But what we do know is that they were seeking Jesus. But seeking does not always mean proper seeking. If the crowd was motivated from the night before, and they're still operating under that motivation, then their seeking Jesus is improper. They're seeking to make Him the political king. And so church, why are you seeking Jesus? Why do you seek Him? Do you find that you tend to only seek Jesus after He feeds you? You may come back from a mission trip or a camp experience or a really powerful worship night and you're feeling deeply fed by the Lord and you want to replicate that experience all over again every single day. You want that mountaintop experience again and again. But what happens when Jesus seems to no longer be on the mountaintop but across the sea? What then? We tend to measure being fed with how it makes us feel. That's how we tend to measure it. I would say like a drug or a high and less on desiring Jesus Himself. Even if desiring Jesus alone does not produce that high. Think about it this way. We've been praying for the Christians in Afghanistan. Been praying for Afghanistan. It's all over the news every day. Do you think the Christians in Afghanistan are seeking the Jesus that can give them the mountaintop experience of life? Is that what they're looking for? I, I heard a, a gentleman, I don't think he's a believer, be interviewed from Afghanistan. He's voicing that he's ready to die. He knows that there's no way for him to get out. And as soon as he gets captured, he's going to be killed because he was aiding Americans for the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years. But he is ready. He knows that he's going to die for a good cause. That's the sort of mentality we are hearing overseas. Christianity in America, we're like drug addicts. We're like drug addicts. Addicts are some of the best workers. right? When you have an addiction... You'll do whatever you have to do. You'll sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice. You'll starve yourself. You'll do whatever it takes to get the drugs that you need. You'll steal. You'll rob. Your work ethic is through the roof amazing. But then when it comes to pursuing something other than those drugs, other than what feeds their high, then all of a sudden... It seems like they have no drive, there's no desire, there's no willpower to do anything. If Jesus doesn't produce a high, then our drive tends to plummet as Americans. We want the high. We want the experience. We want that adrenaline, that blood flowing through our veins. And if we don't get it, man, we're missing Him apparently. And so we'll go find anything we can to get that high. 
And so I want to ask you, as we continue on in this story, to begin to ask yourself, am I seeking Jesus for the same reasons as the crowd? And the reasons will begin to unfold, and they'll unfold even into next week and the week after in the sermons. But ask yourself, am I seeking Jesus for the same reasons as the crowd? So the crowd figures out Jesus has gone to the other side and makes their way as well to Capernaum and find the one they're seeking. But it doesn't turn out the way they are expecting. Verses 25 through 34. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? The crowd was confused. Remember that. Where's Jesus? How could he have possibly gotten over here? Well, he's over there. And they most likely speculated, surely he didn't just go across the water without a boat. But listen to this. In their confusion, they illuminate their failure to see Jesus as the Christ when they call him rabbi, teacher. They completely are missing him. Their confusion, their question on the other side of the sea was good. It's a good place to be asking those questions. But then you see, ah, they still weren't seeing Christ. They're still blind to who Jesus is. And so Jesus answered them, not even answering their question. That's what I love about Jesus. He just gets straight to the heart. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Okay, what are they seeking? Not because you saw signs. Remember, signs are a big deal. Jesus is making the case, made the case prior that His signs are something that point to the Father. He doesn't decide to bring up Him walking on water. That's a moot point here. But if they would have seen the signs and understood the signs, they would know the Father. It would have been received if he told them that he was, had just walked on water. It would have been received like the Israelites received the ten plagues in Egypt. It would have just been received ultimately with a follow-up of grumbling and complaining. But they sought him because they ate their fill of the loaves. Jesus just gets straight to it. They sought Jesus because they were fed and their stomachs are hungry again. They're hungry again. And so Jesus says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus brings the crowd into this theological discussion of food that truly matters. It's like He he did in chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Water that truly matters. Ultimately talking about the living waters. So Jesus gives two directions. First, do not work for food that perishes. Think about this for a moment. You have God. You have the I Am standing here. And He's saying to sinners, do not work for food that perishes. Sinners deserve to eat food that perishes. If we're true to our theology about the doctrine of sin and man, we, have, we deserve punishment. But Jesus 
is essentially inviting them to receive a bread that will not perish. This is a form of mercy. Not receiving what it is they truly deserve to receive, which is punishment. Just like Moses and Israel. Constant complaining, constant grumbling. They deserved really to be crushed in the Red Sea alongside the Egyptians. But God spared. There was mercy. And secondly, he says, work for food that endures to eternal life. As sinners, we're not in deserving of that food that gives us eternal life. And Jesus, the Son of Man, he says, he uses this title as opposed to Messiah or prophet. It's a less politically charged title. The Son of Man. This is the food the Son of Man in an act of grace is going to give to you, he says. That is grace. Giving essentially what is not deserved. These people are seeking Him for the wrong things, wrong motives, wrong everything. And yet Jesus, even in this correction, if you will, is showing the grace and the mercy of the Father through the Son. So He says, work for those things. Work. Work is requirement. So, basically what we're asking here is, what is required? And so we don't kind of trail off into this works-based righteousness here. This is something, this bread is something that the Son of Man gives. It is not earned. He gives it. And with that said, this, there's a clearer meaning of this, and it would be like this. What is required of you to receive the eternal food the Son of Man gives? What is required of you to receive the eternal food that the Son of Man gives? And we'll discuss that in the next two verses, making it more clear. The Son of Man, He's the one who gives food, and He gives it because for on Him God the Father has set His seal. Jesus, again, not taking credit, not saying, I'm the one, not robbing the Father of His due glory, saying that the Son of Man does this because the Father has set His seal upon Him. We work through the book of Ezra, through the book of Esther, and we remember those times when the king would send out decrees across the land. And so there's this picture, this imagery here, like a king sending out a decree across the land. It's, its decree is rolled up in a scroll and then it is sealed with wax. And on that wax is pressed the insignia of the king, verifying that wherever this decree goes, once it's open, and by that seal, the words inside of it are the words of the king. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus is the living Word of God sent out into the world, marked with the insignia of the Father, to carry out whatever works the Father would have Him to do. And the words of Jesus are the words of the Father. And so in this case, the Father gives the Son of Man the authority to give out bread that endures to eternal life. Jesus doesn't operate under His own authority, own a power. He does it under the authority and power of the Father. So they hear Him. Maybe they finally hear Him right for the first time. And 28, then they said to Him, well, what must we do 
to be doing the works of God? It's a good question. It's a right question. And so there's no confusion. What they're asking is, what works does God require of us? What does God require of us then? And Jesus answered them. And He actually answers their question. (laughs) This is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. Here it is. Here's what is required of you. Belief. Faith. That's it. Faith in Jesus, the Son of Man. The One who brings to them eternal bread. Bread that endures. That is all that is required of these grumbling, complaining sinners of us. So they said to Him, I mean, that's just too simple. That's just too easy. Okay, so uh, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's like, are you serious? You want me to prove you? You want me to prove my point again? Here it is. You want me to show you something? A sign? Like multiplying bread and fish? Is that what you're wanting? But this is exactly like ancient Israel. Exactly like ancient Israel. Prove to us that God has sent you to us, Moses. Show us. He's already shown the signs. But what they're asking is that if He is greater than Moses, then He will do even greater signs than Moses. Even Moses called upon God to bring manna down from heaven and quail and water. Okay, so you brought bread and fish. whoop do you do Show us even more. So they're telling Jesus to up His game. Why don't you up your game? And so the accusation... Moses gave the people food when they asked, if you're the one God has sent that is greater than Moses, then make it rain bread and more. Make it rain, Jesus, and then we'll believe you. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, verse 32, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father. Jesus highlights the crown is just as guilty as Israel. They focused too much on Moses and not on God. God didn't send Moses and Aaron, essentially, for the people to focus on them, but to draw attention to God. Jesus has been making that point all along. I do the works of the Father. I do what He does. I say what He says. This is not my own. I am a pure, perfect godly, righteous, holy reflection of the Father. This is, it's not about me. It is, but as long as the attention is brought to the Father. Jesus' purpose in saving sinners is to point people to the Father. And so the crowd is missing the Father. Missing Him. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 33. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven. Notice this. In spite of all the grumbling, in spite of all the complaining, it is the Father who gives them true bread. He has done it. The bread is standing before them. And notice, the bread 
becomes personified here. Jesus was talking about a loaf when they came across the sea, but now he talks about the bread in the form of a he. It's a personified bread, not something edible in the sense of a loaf. The bread has literally come down and is literally standing in front of the crowd. And this bread that he is calling them to eat has an active agent. And that active agent gives life to the world. That life that is given to the world is done through the Holy Spirit. And more than that, this bread that can be received in faith can be received by anyone in the world. So Jesus is on display here, this, this full picture of the Gospel that the, that the bread of life is coming and it's not just to the Jews in the wilderness, it's not to the Jews only near the Sea of Galilee, but the bread of life is coming to anyone who would receive Him by faith. And so they wrap up by saying, well, sir, give us this bread always. Let's give the crowd some credit. I mean, they're still missing it. Still missing the point. They want, they need a Savior. And Jesus knows this. He knows that their theology, He knows that the way that they read the Bible is off. It's crooked. It's slanted. And so they have this mindset, this worldview, this perception of the way that Scripture is supposed to be understood. And it's skewing their thinking. And it's essentially blinding them to God's Word that's standing before them. He remains compassionate towards them. And so Jesus will then take this response and He will turn this teaching, kind of veering away from a metaphorical sense into a more explicit understanding in verse 35 when He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. This beautiful marrying of chapter 4 and chapter 6 in John's Gospel of the living water and the living bread. What is required of you, Christian? What is required of you? Have you thought and asked yourself that question? What does God require of me? The answer is faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. The bread of enduring life. The true bread. Some of us keep on thinking and operating that no, it has to be something more than believing. And understand, I'm not removing works that comes as a result of faith, but talking about this salvation, this life that we are given. We cannot seem to fathom the idea that the Father has made His salvation so easily accessible. For some reason... Some of us like to prove ourselves to show that we're strong enough. That we have it in us to make God happy with us. But maybe that's why some of us test Jesus to prove Himself. Because we want our Jesus to be just as prideful as us. But Jesus stands here today not condemning you, not condemning you, but giving you Himself. That's what He does. The Father has sent the bread of heaven 
to you so that you may have life. So take and eat and be satisfied. Expect no more. It really is that simple. Jesus sees how tired you are. He sees how exhausted you are from trying so hard all the time. He sees how fatigued your soul is from trying to get on top. Trying to get a hold of things. Get life under control. Rowing across the sea against the wind and the waves. He sees it. He's calling you to stop seeking for bread that perishes and to remain on the other side of the sea where He already fed you. Just remain content in Him. You don't have to labor across the sea to get more. He has already given you all you need. Just believe. If the people would have understood that in Tiberias, they wouldn't have worked so hard to run over to Capernaum. But they were blind. And all the grumbling and complaining of Israel after God delivered them from Egypt, God never failed to come through on His promise. The people grumbled of hunger, and He fed them. The people grumbled of thirst, He gave them water. The people grumbled about the wilderness, He gave them tents and clothes and shoes that never wore out. The people continued to grumble, and God continued to be merciful and gracious. In fact, He continued His track record of grace and mercy across the span of millennia, revealing perfectly one day His grace to us through a baby boy named Jesus. What more do we need the Father or Jesus to prove to us? What more does He need to prove? Jesus has died for our sins. He rose from the grave. He ascended to the Father. He poured out His Spirit upon the church. He gave us His Word and He promises us He will return and all He requires of you and me is faith, belief, trust in Him. Today is not the day to say, well God, if You do this one more thing, then I will. But today is the day to say, I am a sinner who has been eating bread that perishes and I desire now to eat the bread that gives eternal life. Today is the day to come to Jesus. Today is the day to receive His grace. Today is the day we turn our hearts and our appetites to the One who truly satisfies our souls with true bread and living water. Today is the day we truly eat bread that satisfies.